Shut up and sit down. Welcome to Popcraft, where we'll autopsy the screenplays behind your favorite films and TV shows. I'm your host, Carl Albert. This week, we are going to do a deep dive into plants and payoffs. I just felt like this was a topic that I mentioned a lot in any given episode. Every movie, every TV show, fucking everything you see or read every piece of storytelling is going to have plans and payoffs. It just fundamentally is. And in my opinion, often the more plans and payoffs there are in a story, the more tightly written, the better written it is. So what is a plant and a payoff? I think it's fairly self-explanatory, but in the simplest terms, you as the writer plant something early in the story to then pay it off later in the story. And we will talk about today, different types of plants and payoffs. Now, before we get too far into things, I do want to say that uh, there will be spoilers, and I will let you know about the spoilers before any given movie or TV show, so you can skip ahead to wherever you want to. And uh, additionally, I kind of am coming at this expecting that you have a basic understanding of literary theory and by that I I really do mean just like basic stuff like what is symbolism what is foreshadowing that sort of shit like the most basic entry-level terms so I will be using those freely I will continue to use those freely but I do want to clarify the idea of plants and payoffs and the different categories there are now on the subject of foreshadowing that is a kind of plant and payoff right you're foreshadowing an event to come And we will get into different types of foreshadowing, but for the purpose of this podcast, foreshadowing is too broad a term for what I want to talk about today. I want to drill down into more specific categories, more specific types of plants and payoffs. With that said, let's jump right in with character plants and payoffs. Now, when I say character plants and payoffs, I mean specifically that these plants and payoffs relate to a character's personality, a character's arc, a character's emotional state, right? Like these come out in two specific sort of subcategories as I view them, dialogue plants and payoffs and behavior plants and payoffs. And there's a little nuance, a little gray area as we'll get to, but the long and short of it is a character may say something or do something early on in a movie, in a TV show that you could view as foreshadowing for a later event, but at the very least gets brought up again in a later event. For an example of a dialogue plant and payoff, one of the first ones I like to think of is from Game of Thrones, actually. So if you haven't seen the first season of Game of Thrones, the most watched television show of all time and probably most hated last season of all time, we're going to talk about Littlefinger. Littlefinger, who is basically sort of a Machiavellian figure in the show. He's introduced as such. He literally tells our lead for the first season, Ned Stark, you shouldn't trust me. You shouldn't trust anyone in King's Landing. Ned doesn't, I wouldn't say ever fully trust Littlefinger, but he works with Littlefinger. He makes Littlefinger his ally. And of course, then in the late game of the first season, at Ned's lowest point, Littlefinger betrays him. He puts a knife to Ned's throat and helps the city guard arrest him. And you know what he says to Ned in that moment? I told you, you shouldn't trust me. The dialogue is word for word brought back from the earlier scene. And it's a great payoff 
Because we always knew that there was something kind of slimy about Littlefinger. We always, as the audience, didn't trust him. And it was like a ticking bomb under the table, you know? It was creating this suspense. Littlefinger is going to betray Ned Stark. He says as much, and although he kind of says it as a quip, his introduction, it very much is not a joke. And it literally comes back with a completely different tone later on. And it's so satisfying to watch that happen. To have a character, especially in terms of a betrayal, foreshadow their betrayal, and then pay it off with the exact same phrasing makes a light bulb go off in the audience's head. On a similar note, we have, and this will be a spoiler for season three, and arguably as well season two of Succession. So if you've not seen the finale of season three, please go check it out. It's the best fucking show on television right now. It is amazing. Best performances, best writing, just an incredible masterclass in storytelling, particularly character-driven storytelling. And please check out last episode where Chasey Ridgely and I discussed the pilot of Succession and how it is similar to a pilot of a procedural. With that said, let's talk about Jerry. Now, there's a lot I actually want to talk about from the season three finale, but that is not the focus of this episode. However, it did inspire me to make this episode and to talk about the plant and payoff with Jerry Kelman, I think is her last name, something like that, Killman. I don't know if that's intentional or not, or if I'm just making things up and you're hearing me blabber about nonsense. But uh, Jerry, in season two, she has this really weird, fucked up, it's sexual, but it's also kind of maternal relationship with Roman Roy. And Jerry tells Roman, trying to be a mentor for him, you need to always be thinking, how does this best serve my interest? What best serves my interest? And then in the late game in season three, after Roman has come to rely on Jerry, after Roman has come to trust Jerry more than he trusts his own family, in a defining moment, Roman goes on his hands and knees to Jerry, begging for her support, begging for her to turn against his father. And yet Jerry asks him, what best serves my personal interests. Now, I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing. I'm probably not getting the wording right exactly. And in fact, I think the wording of the two scenes, the two lines, are different. It's not like the little finger where we get it word for word coming back. And in fact, it's coming back at a much later date. But it gets to the core of Jerry's personality. It's such a great moment with betrayals where you have a character tell you, literally tell you who they are. And yet, the character, you know, another character, for whatever reason, still trusts them, still gets emotionally invested in them. And you as the audience, you feel the suspense of that, right? Like, you want that character not to betray them, but you know deep down, shit, that person's a snake. And you know what? That snake fucking bites them, bites their ass, pumps them full of venom, ignore my batshit weird metaphors, but... The point of it is, it's a great plant and payoff for any betrayal, right? Is to have a character shine a fucking flashing red light over the fact that they're going to betray someone and then do it down the line. And maybe, you know, like Littlefinger, they play it off as a quip. It's like, oh, you shouldn't trust me. Like, ha ha ha. Or Jerry trying to talk Roman up, trying to teach Roman, be like, you need to be thinking about your best interest, your personal interest all the time. And of course, when all the cards are laid, when all the dice are rolled, that's exactly what she does. The next type of dialogue, plant, and payoff that I want to talk about is a very explicit type of foreshadowing, often used for comedic relief, 
as you'll see throughout this, there there are often witticisms, quips tied to plants and payoffs in dialogue form. And this is certainly a great example of it from a master of this form of plant and payoff, Edgar Wright. In Shaun of the Dead, our parody of the zombie apocalypse, we have Ed, the kind of layabout loser, played by Nick Frost. Early on, he's talking to, or rather about, his roommate, his shitty stick-up-his-ass, fuck-off douchebag roommate. And he says, next time I see him, he's dead. Next time I see him, he's dead. In the zombie movie. It doesn't take a genius when he says that to know what's coming. And it's great. It's funny. It's witty. I mean, if you don't catch it on the first watch, that's fine. Because on the second watch, and man, Shaun of the Dead is so good and so full of these plans and payoffs. You're going to catch them. You're going to catch something new every time. And of course, the next time they see their roommate, he's a zombie. He had been bitten. He ends up in the bathroom, dying in the shower and coming back, butt-ass naked. It's fucking great. It's a great way to create suspense, to put that bomb under the table, right? To say, next time I see him, he's dead in the fucking zombie movie. I mean, it speaks for itself, right? And again, Shaun of the Dead is full of these. I'm actually going to get back to another example uh, of a different kind later, but it's full of these dialogue plants and payoffs and just, it's so expertly written. Definitely check out the script for that for more concrete examples. There's so much you can learn from that. Edgar Wright fucking loves these. I mean, check out the whole Cornetto trilogy for great examples of these plants and payoffs. But we got to move on to another type of dialogue, plant and payoff. And this one is a little trickier because it isn't tied so much to a specific phrase, right? It's more about a, a building theme for a character. It's more about a mystery. It's, in this instance, in The Avengers, a movie that, God, I hope everyone has seen Avengers, like the, like the Game of Thrones of movies, the most fucking watched movie of all time. Throughout the movie, different characters ask Bruce Banner, how do you do it? What's your secret? How do you control the Hulk? Is it yoga, meditation, big bag of weed? How do you do it? And in the climax of the movie, as the Chitari invade New York, and what Captain America says is, Dr. Banner, it may be a good time to get angry, or something like that. And Bruce turns to him and says, well, that's my secret, Cap. I'm always angry. You see, they've been creating this mystery throughout it. How does Bruce Banner control the Hulk? What, what is it about him? What does he do? And it's such a great payoff because, one, it's surprising. You don't think his answer is going to be, oh, my trigger? That's it. That's me. That's who I am. That's what, how I always am. How I turn into the Hulk, that is just fundamental to me. It tells you so much about his character while also being like a clever little quippy line that Joss Whedon is so great at. In the audience, it is, it's just a great payoff, right? It's so satisfying. I'm sure even just listening to that, you kind of get chills. You get goosebumps, right? I'm always angry. It's one of the most iconic scenes in that movie that he can just control the Hulk, turn into the Hulk on a dime, on a whim, because he's always angry. That's his secret. That's the payoff. The last of these sort of, in these line of explicit dialogue plans and payoffs that I want to talk about in these character dialogue plants and payoffs is an example that actually falls into the other side of the character coin as well as the dialogue one where it is simultaneously a dialogue plant and payoff as well as a behavioral 
plant and payoff. A it shows and tells, if you will. The example I'm going to give is from Fight Club. If you've not seen Fight Club, go watch it. Come back and listen to the rest of this episode. Fight Club is going to come up again. It has one of the best twists in movie history. It's one of the best written, best directed, best acted movies of all time. Go check it out if you haven't already. Otherwise, keep listening. The scene that I'm going to reference is early on in the movie. We have our narrator played by Ed Norton, who voices over the entire movie. We get his inner thoughts. We get his unreliable narration. And early on, he's quitting the job he hates. And he starts to beat the shit out of himself, just personally punching himself in front of his boss. And as he does this, he thinks, for some reason, I thought of my first fight with Tyler. Now, Tyler Durden is played by Brad Pitt, is the character who starts our narrator on his journey, who starts the fight club with him, who fights him early on and basically gets him to open up to this new toxic experience, admittedly. And as we find out at the end of the movie, Tyler Durden is a figment of Ed Norton's imagination, a figment of his broken mind, of his mentally ill mind. Throughout the entire movie, we get, we get a flashes to later of how the scenes actually played out of Ed Norton beating the shit out of himself whenever Tyler was beating the shit out of him, or Ed Norton as Tyler acting more confident, fighting people, cursing people out. We see that Tyler is the narrator. The narrator is Tyler. And so the entire movie, the whole twist of the movie is set up for you explicitly in that scene where Ed Norton's character is quitting, where he says, for some reason, I thought of my first fight with Tyler as he's literally beating himself up. It is his behavior. You see what he does this entire movie. And it is also the dialogue, the narration, the telling of it. It is foreshadowing the eventual twist. It is planting it so that you can pay it off down the line. And it is oh so satisfying. A lot of these plans and payoffs you'll see, and especially a lot of the ones that are explicitly foreshadowing, are even better on a rewatch. There are things you may not necessarily, as an audience member, catch on the first time through, but they make your story feel so much richer, so much deeper, so much more well thought out. That's why we do these plans and payoffs, right? Is so the audience, whether they know it, whether they really take note of this scene or not, of the narrator thinking, for some reason, I thought of my first fight with Tyler, that it has clicked for them. It's in their head. And so when the big twist comes, when they find out what the hell is going on, it's a revelatory moment for them. It changes the way they view the movie. It's truly emotional. It's shocking. And it's oh so worthwhile. Last example of a character-centered plant and payoff that I want to talk about also comes from the Avengers. It is from another one of the most famous lines from the movie as Captain America and Iron Man, Steve Rogers and Tony Stark are going at it, arguing the team. Seems like it's on the brink of falling apart. Tony tells Cap, you know, everything special about you came out of a bottle. And Cap in turn replies, you know, you're not the kind of man, you're not the kind of hero you're not a hero because you wouldn't lay down on the wire for your teammates. Tony, of course, quips back. I'd prefer to just cut the wire. Tony has been built up this entire time as an egomaniac, as self-centered, selfish, kind of a piece of shit, frankly. And I think we as audience members, I mean, we've seen theoretically two prior Iron Man movies. We know he is a heroic person, but Cap doesn't know that. And it's then so very satisfying to see at the end of the movie when Tony 
lays down on the wire. He takes the nuclear missile that's coming from New York City and he flies it up into a wormhole and he fires it at the Chitauri mothership. He effectively saves the day. But this, he believes, is a suicide mission. He thinks it's a one-way trip. He thinks he's going to get caught in the explosion. He thinks the portal will close before he can get home. He thinks he's going to die. He literally lays down on the wire so his teammates and the whole world can climb over him. Now you can see kind of where the nuances of this come in because it's not even like the I'm always angry moment where it is driven by dialogue. The payoff here is in action, but the setup is in dialogue. The setup is Cap challenging Tony and saying, I don't think you're a hero. And Tony in the end of the movie proving, yes, in fact, he is. Tony Stark is a superhero. And I mean, shit, that's like his entire arc, right? Like that's, he's a very flawed person, but continues through and he lays down on the wire at the fucking end of it all. So yeah, character-centric plans and payoffs. This is the first category that we're covering. By now, you probably have a pretty good idea of what I mean when I say that. It is planting something about a character to then pay off later down the line. It is relating to some core part of who they are and then showing that part down the line. You know, perhaps a character says something and then says it again in a different context, with a different tone. It takes on a whole new meaning. I mean, there's so many more examples that we could get into, but I think it's time to move on to the next type of plant and payoff. You may have heard of it. Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's gun was a term coined by Anton Chekhov, the playwright, and it more than anything was about keeping your story as lean as possible. There shouldn't be a single thing introduced in your story if it's not going to pay off later. So Chekhov's whole like theory, his point, was if you show a rifle hanging on the wall in the first act, in the third act, someone needs to fire that fucking rifle. That's Chekhov's gun. And it is a great type of plant and payoff. First, we'll get to the most explicit Chekhov's gun in my list, which is, again, from Shaun of the Dead, the Winchester rifle. It is literally a rifle hanging on the wall of the Winchester. And of course, by the end of the movie, in the third act, they use the shit out of that rifle. In fact, it ends up being used for a really dramatic moment where Sean has to question whether or not he's going to kill Ed, his best friend, when Ed's bitten by a zombie. It's not only a badass payoff, it's not only smart writing, it's emotional writing. It's a way you can take a plant and not only do that little flip the light switch in the audience's brain and go, oh yeah, that's right, but also have them feel something and feel it all the more because it had always been there. You had planted that early on. The next example I want to give of Chekhov's gun is in The Shawshank Redemption. Again, one of the most popular movies of all time. If you haven't seen it, please go watch it. It's a fucking amazing movie. It's a feel-good movie. So you don't have to worry about it, you know, being like an Oscar-y, depressing movie. Like, it's it's a real feel-good movie. So go check it out and come back and finish the episode if you haven't already. In Shawshank Redemption, there are actually several Chekhov's gun, but the one I really want to focus on is, is the one that also comes from the title of the Stephen King uh, short story that the movie is based on, which is a poster of Rita Hayworth. So basic premise of Shawshank Redemption is uh, Andy Duquesne goes to prison for a crime he didn't commit, sentenced to life, and he basically, throughout the movie, you know, it's about, it's following these prisoners as they 
grow closer. It's humanizing them. It's a redemptive story. It's a story about joy and growth and peace and love. And throughout the entire movie, as we find out at the end, Andy Duquesne has been slowly digging his way out of the prison to escape. He does escape, and he's been covering the hole with his picture of, or with his poster, rather, of Rita Hayworth, the movie star. It's a little throwaway gift early on. It's a nice little character moment that Red, I believe it is, gives Andy Duquesne this poster. And please correct me if I'm getting any of the details and any of these wrong. But Red gives Andy Duquesne the poster as a gift, and in turn, Andy uses it to cover up his great scheme. It's an awesome payoff. It's in fact, the gun has been firing throughout the entire movie. You just haven't seen it. You know, it's another twist that you're getting foreshadowing for. But in this case, it's a more explicit item-based Chekhov's gun. Again, in this case, you can think of, if we talked about character-centric plans and payoffs, Chekhov's gun is object-centered plans and payoffs. And the last of which we're going to talk about is from Aliens, where Ripley, our lead, and again, go watch Aliens if you haven't already. Early in the movie, Ripley sees the power loader suit, a big fucking, you know, like, it's supposed to move boxes, it's supposed to move heavy materials. And at the end of the movie, when she's facing off with the xenomorphs, Ripley jumps in the power loader and walks out like fucking Iron Man for a big, climactic, epic, fuck yeah moment for the audience. And it's all the more of a fuck yeah, not just because Ripley's a fucking badass and she's going out and she's about to kick this alien's ass, but you've seen that thing, right? Like it's, the gun is being fired. It flips that light switch in the audience's head. It is so satisfying. So I think that quickly covers Chekhov's gun or object-centric plants and payoffs. The next is related to that, which is I want to talk about symbolic plants and payoffs. It's another kind of object plant and payoff oftentimes, although sometimes it's not an object so much as it might be an animal or, well, you'll see. The first example I want to give is from Doctor Strange, the Marvel movie Doctor Strange, and it is Stephen Strange's watch, the watch he wears at all time. He comments on it early on. It's his favorite watch. He loves it. He's a prick, but a very rich prick who can afford very nice watches, and it's the one thing he keeps when he loses all his money trying to get his hands, his broken hands, surgically repaired. It's the watch he was wearing I believe, when he was in the car crash that ruined his hands. And he shattered the watch's face. Shows that he, symbolically, has been broken, but it also foreshadows the focus on time in the movie and his eventual relationship with the time stone, his eventual ability to manipulate time. And he can never bring himself to wear it. He can't bring himself to wear that broken watch throughout the movie until the very end when Stephen Strange has grown as a person, when he's become Doctor Strange, the superhero, the Sorcerer Supreme, it's at the very end of the movie, I think the very last shot, in fact, or the second to last shot, that he's in the Sanctum Sanctorum, and he puts on that broken watch. He accepts who he is. He accepts his role as Sorcerer Supreme, capable of breaking and manipulating time. It's a great plant and payoff to show how far he's come. That at the end of the day, That watch has always been his. This is always who he's been deep down. He just had to accept it. He had to embrace his new role. On a similar note, on clocks, we're going to talk about Back to the Future. This is 
not the deepest uh, symbolism, but the movie opens with a bunch of shots of clocks. It literally just foreshadows this movie's going to be a time travel movie. I'm not going to over-explain this. If you've seen Back to the Future, it's just a bunch of clocks. And this movie is about time travel. It's as simple as that. But it's like it's a fun little way to open, right? The first image you give the audience, that's an important image. That's the first, like, that's their introduction to the movie, to the characters. You know, you should not underestimate the power of an opening image. Please, even if it's in a superficial way, think about the opening image of your movie, of your screenplay. What is it you're showing the audience? What is it you're telling them? What is going to be their entryway, their POV into this world, into this journey? In the case of Back to the Future, it's clocks. And again, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. The last symbolic plant payoff I want to talk about is probably the most complicated, the most nuanced, the most literary of all the ones we're going to discuss in this episode, and that comes from Get Out. And if you've seen Get Out, you of course know I'm talking about the deer. Early on in the movie, our main character, whose name I cannot remember and I cannot be arsed to look up, accidentally hits a deer and kills it. And the deer, you know, I'm not going to write a whole essay and, you know, speak it out like fucking slam poetry on this uh, podcast, but... The deer basically represents the main character, black people, and how they're treated like taxidermy, like animals, like these lesser trophies for our evil main like antagonistic family who want to use their black bodies as trophies, as taxidermy, as there's a, literally a deer in their house, a deer that they've stuffed and put its head on the fucking wall with its fucking antlers hanging out. It's symbolism showing how they view black people. And it ultimately pays off when our main character in the third act escapes and uses the fucking taxidermy deer on the wall to kill one of the villains. He literally fucking guts the guy with the taxidermy deer head. And it's fucking awesome. That's one of the great ways you can do plans and payoffs is taking an object that isn't a weapon and turning it into a weapon or taking something that's a weapon and using it, you know, emotionally, maybe to heal something, you know, taking like a fucking machete and I don't know, using it to help perform surgery. I'm just spitballing here. But the, the point of these object plans and payoffs is oftentimes not only is if there's a gun on the wall, do you want to fire the gun? But if there's a gun on the wall, is there a way you can pay it off? You know, like comedically, a lot of movies nowadays will have the gun on the wall and then they'll take it down and they'll fire it. And, oh, it turns out there's no bullets. And so it's kind of a joke. Ha ha. Or, you know, to create suspense, something like that. I think there's a scene um, like that in uh, Ready or Not, which is a great movie if you haven't seen. And oftentimes, as I said, a lot of object plans and payoffs are something that is not a weapon is taken and used as a weapon later on. And it's kind of almost a cliche nowadays especially in like early writers scripts but it's fun like there's nothing wrong with taking something that's not a weapon and using it as a weapon especially in an action movie or a horror movie a movie where violence is kind of a defining feature of the story and likewise with the symbolic plans and payoffs not only i mean in the case of get out is it emotionally resonant is it a plot driver in terms of our main character uses it to escape daniel kaluuya's character uses it to escape the the deer head but it has thematic resonance. The symbolic plans and payoffs are, are about theme first and foremost. Although, again, as in Get Out's case, it's both important for the theme and the plot, and arguably for the character. 
These are great plans and payoffs. So never hesitate to put a rifle on the wall and fire it in your third act. The next category of plant and payoff I want to talk about is what I think of as plot or event, really, plant and payoff. Maybe I'm miscategorizing the things in this one, but what I, how I view this category is something happens early in the movie that then comes back later on. That event plays in a role later on in a way you did not expect. So the simplest version we'll talk about is the example comes from the Amazing Spider-Man movie. This is the Mark Webb movie with Andrew Garfield. You've probably seen it. It's, you know, Lizard Bad Guy, Gwen Stacy, all that shit. Relatively early in the movie, in the first half, I believe, Spider-Man saves uh, a little kid and he gives the kid back to his father. And the father then comes back in the third act of the movie. It turns out the father is a crane operator. And the father calls up all his crane operating buddies and is like, Spider-Man fucking needs us because Spider-Man is bleeding. He's struggling to get to Oscorp Tower where the lizard's about to set off a big like chemical bomb that's going to turn everyone in the city to lizards. And it is as silly in the movie as it is saying that out loud. I like The Amazing Spider-Man. Don't get me wrong. I'm not shitting on the movie. Uh, And that's actually straight out of the comics too. Anyway, tangent. The point is Peter's Spider-Man's act of heroism, his good act, early on in the movie pays off for him later on. It's a really satisfying thing to see, especially, I think, because in real life, that so rarely is true. So often, you know, there's the saying, like, no good act goes unpunished. But I, I mean, I think even more accurately, no good act goes unforgotten. I think you get what I'm saying, which is that you do something good, and more often than not, you know, nothing comes of it. You just maybe feel a little good about yourself. And in a movie, it's so satisfying to see it actually pay off, to see Spider-Man save a man's son and then that man later to come in and help him out in a moment that he needs him most it's this sort of karmic satisfaction that we look for in movies this catharsis that we go to movies for on a similar sort of plot-based plant payoff we have an iron man another superhero movie in the first half of the movie tony is building his new suit he's becoming iron man he's testing all the tech out and he wants to test it to see how like high in the sky he can take his suit. And the atmosphere gets too cold and his suit freezes and shuts down. And so he notes to himself and Jarvis, his AI butler, we got to prepare antifreeze. We got to prepare for that. We have to be able to fly higher. And then pardon the dog if you hear the dog barking in the background. In the third act of the movie, when Iron Man is fighting Iron Monger, big, you know, classic superhero third act beat down. Ironmonger is whooping his ass. He's bigger, he's stronger, he's tougher. So Iron Man gets him to fly up and chase him up into the sky. And of course, because Obadiah Stane is not a genius, because Obadiah Stane is not Tony Stark, he was not smart enough to test it properly. He was not smart enough to predict and prepare for the freezing. And so Tony's suit withstands the atmosphere while the Ironmonger suit freezes. And it's a great plant and payoff. Tony even has some line like, how did you prepare uh for the the atmospheric temperature or something like that you know he's just like quipping it obadiah stain it's so satisfying to see this early little like plot beat that's like fun and showcases tony's process and his growth and the montage therein and then to see that pay off in a real plot way a real plotty twisty fun way and then climax the movie as you can see these plot centric plants and payoffs are about taking an event early on in the movie early on in the plot 
and paying it off later on. So whether it be, you know, the hero does something heroic and has this sort of karmic good moment where, you know, the person they save, the person they helped, helps them later on, or maybe they do something bad and that comes to bite them in the ass later on. You know, it depends on the type of story you're telling. Point is that something that happens early on pays off later on. The last type of plant and payoff I want to talk about is one I'm not going to dig too deep into because it's not used that commonly anymore, even though I'm a big fan of it, and that is prophecies, foretellings, visions of the future. This is definitely another one of those forms of plans and payoffs that is a type of foreshadowing, it's a type of creating suspense, it's putting the bomb under the table so it can tick, tick, tick and blow up. It's, you know, an Oedipus where the king of Thebes or wherever gets a prophecy saying that your son will kill you and marry your wife. It's Macbeth, the witch is coming in and being like, you're going to be a great man and it's going to fucking ruin you. It's in Star Wars, Anakin, you know, spoiler alert for Star Wars, being told, you know, he's going to, he's the chosen one. He's going to bring balance to the force. And although it does not happen at all in the way you expect, he eventually kills the Emperor theoretically, debatable now with the sequel trilogy, we're not getting into that, but he theoretically kills the Emperor and brings balance to the Force. In Dune, it's Paul's visions, and although his visions are not fully reliable, there is a level of truth to them. He does predict that he is going to meet a woman, a girl named Chani, and he's going to fall in love with her. I mean, spoiler alert, but that's literally the premise of the movie, and the book for that matter. Prophecies are... I think exciting and fun and you can really play with interesting notions of predestination versus free will and they're thematically really interesting and a great way to create suspense but movies don't really deal with them a lot whether because you know not a lot of movies deal with magic and not a lot of movies are interested in challenging our notions of free will Americans especially are really obsessed with freedom and the idea of free will and oftentimes prophecies, when they're done well, are tragic narratives. Sometimes they're like Harry Potter and they're about the hero overcoming the great evil and it's more than anything about surprising you with how the hero overcomes the great evil. Sometimes, though, it's like Dune and it's more about the tragedy of it all and how things are going to go wrong for our hero and, and the cost of being prescient, of seeing the future. Again, I, I, I've given some examples. I think prophecies are fairly straightforward in terms of plans and payoffs you have someone foresee something or get told a prophecy and then that prophecy comes true by the climax of the story these are just some of the categories i think of plans and payoffs i'm sure i missed something or miscategorize something email me at popcraftpodcast at gmail.com and let me know how i fucked up i'd love to hear from you consider donating to the patreon Leave a review, leave a comment wherever you listen to podcasts. Excuse my throat cracking there. Share it on social media. Join the Discord. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening as always. I've been your host, Carl Albert, and this is Pop Draft.